Amen. Well, he will hold us fast. Such a great hymn. If you would, take your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 7, although I will admit we'll be multiple places uh, this morning, but I think it will make sense and um, continually with Revelation, um, it is one of those things where um, consistently it's hard to stay there, even more so than any other book in the scriptures, because so much, we're, we're, we're landing the plane. I mean, eschatologically, end times, the world, we're, we're, we're landing the plane. And so, so much goes into those, these truths as we look at Revelation. So we're going to look at the whole chapter. I know I put the, in the bulletin, I was going to look at the first half, but then as I really looked at it and examined it, I feel like for us to get the maximum benefit, um, there is something very helpful to look and to see the two groups of people here in chapter 7 in the midst of an interlude from where we've been with the first six seals before we get to chapter 7 and the eighth seal. But let's pray and just ask the Lord's blessing as we look to his word. Father, thank you for the time that we have now to turn our hearts and our attention to the living word that you have left for us. May we be convicted, convinced that it is living and it is active, that it is meant to impact our lives this morning as we look to a text that first glance where we may think there is nothing for us, for it is about a future that we don't even see here, one where the church is not even mentioned, but yet we see it is about you. And that is what we want to see this morning, is we want to see you, we want to see you glorified. We want to look forward in time to where you will be magnified for what you have done, that you have fulfilled all of your good promises to your people throughout all of the ages. We know that you are a God who is trustworthy. And because of that, we can trust you now and we can trust you with not only our future, but with the future of the world. Just encourage us this morning as we look to your word. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, the old adage is that you get what you pay for. And I imagine many of you have experienced this. I always like to live on the edge. I never want to pay the premium. I don't really want to buy the, the cheap one. And, and every once in a while, I, I get burnt. So I'm sure you've had the same experience as me. You go look for tools, and you want to buy— I don't want to pay the best. I don't want to get the best paint sprayer. I don't want to get the best paint. And I'll tell you, I'm probably 70 80% on being disappointed. I'm not ready at almost 40 years old to commit to buying the best of things, but you really understand how people get there. When I look at my walls and I go, why didn't I spend an extra $20 a gallon to get the nicer paint? Because it looks like it's 10 years old, which it could be a little bit of, you know, four boys and lots of sticky fingers on the wall. But in general, I think we all kind of see, you get what you pay for. And when you pay little, you get little. And if you are expecting great things, what follows? Disappointment. 
you're disappointed at, I thought I had an expectation of this, and then you get it. And every once in a while, I actually do. I spend the money and I get the premium product, and yet even that kind of falls short. You've all had the experience perhaps where you go out to dinner, and you go to the expensive steakhouse, and you spend the money you said you never would spend, and you go, eh, it's okay. It's like, maybe it's a little bit better than the steak I made at my house. And you go, I don't, I don't quite use that level of disappointment. When you look towards the future, one of the things I think we gain from Revelation is a promise that you will not be disappointed. When you look at the fulfillment of all of God's promises and all of God's plans, Revelation is here standing that you may not know how everything is going to work out in the sense that you don't know all of the details and how all the dots connect. But Revelation is here to say John is being, is getting this revealed to him for the confidence for the church age that every wrong will be made right. Or as we're going to see of the multitude from every nation, that they will hunger no longer, they will nor thirst anymore, nor will they, the sun beat down upon them, nor any heat. This whole chapter ends with, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I don't know all the details, but I do know this, that you will not be disappointed. And the reason you won't be disappointed is because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And you wonder as you look at chapter 7, and and I know some of you are jumping in here a little bit. We've had this history of of Revelation revealed, and we're going to get into what is this 144,000 and maybe some confusion. I think we can clarify the big picture here to go, this is what God is going to do in fulfilling and answering two major biblical questions. And you approached your Bible for many of you, January 1st, and you started a reading plan. And if you did the whole Bible in a year, it just dumps you in the beginning. And it's not a bad place because it's good to look at the scripture and think, man, we should go, as some have described, and see it begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. It begins with creation. And we're in the tribulation of kind of uncreation and then by the end of Revelation, new creation. There's a lot of things that happen along the way. But it is moving to a new heavens and a new earth. But as you take inventory, and I'm sure you've been reading in Genesis, very early, you're going to get introduced to Adam and Eve. You're going to get introduced to Noah. You're going to get introduced to Abraham. And then, the little illustration here, you're going to ask the question at some point, this, at least for my Bible, is what we call the Old Testament. This is what we call the New Testament. Bear with me without exact math. Let's call it two-thirds. Two-thirds of your Bible is going to be about something, someone, particularly when you get into the major and minor prophets, about the nation Israel. And yes, we are the church redeemed by the blood of Christ. And that Messiah did come through the nation of Israel just as promised in the Old Testament. But you can't help but finish that yearly reading Bible plan and go, but what about? I know I read some things in Isaiah. I know I read some things in Ezekiel about Israel being brought back into the land, to Israel being redeemed, God fulfilling his promises and demonstrating for his namesake, as we'll see, for his glory. 
I would submit to you, when we get introduced in chapter 7 to this interlude, you're going to get an answer. In part, what's going on with Israel during these judgments? And then the second question is, the other major player, it's not the church in the Old Testament. The other major player, it's pretty much Israel and everybody else, or as oftentimes called the Gentiles or the nations. What's going on with the rest of the nations? And he's going to let you know God's people during the tribulation, these sealed out of the tribes of Israel— and the nations. He's going to let you know what is happening to both of them. And that's why I think it's helpful to look at both simultaneously. And so we may not answer every question, but I'm available afterwards. And you can hit me with all of your questions then. Just referring back to the graph. So maybe give ourselves a little bit of framework here where we are. We understood that the last days, the day of Yahweh is, this last day period is from the ascension of Christ till the end of time. So you see the bottom, the last days. That's a reference that shows up as early as the end of Genesis, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And then you see, kind of working from the bottom up, the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. And that's where both judgment, and not just judgment, because we're going to see some blessing be poured out this morning, because he's not just going to judge the world. He's going to seal some of his own to become witnesses for his namesake in the midst of this period of destruction as all the judgments are being poured out. As you look at the the first, second, third, and fourth judgments, which are kind of known um, as the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you go back to chapter 6 and we look at the first white horse, which represented the peaceful one who came, but he looks a little bit like he's on a white horse like Christ, but he's not Christ. He is the Antichrist, or at least the spirit of the one that will rise out of this peace that is going to come, but it's a false peace described as a bow with no arrows. That's the first seal that the lamb who is worthy cracks open. And then the second that he cracks open— It reveals a vision of seeing the red horse. That is, war will come. Blood will be spilt. The great sword will be given to that horseman, and he will go out, and war will break out. Thirdly, you see the black horse. You see famine. The description was him with a pair of scales that is weighing, that there is a time of want, a time of need. There won't be enough food to go around during this period, this beginning of this period, the great, or the tribulation period. And then lastly, you see the fourth horseman, the pale horse. He who sits on it, verse 8, had the name Death and Hades and was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth. So them being plural, right? And what happens? To kill with sword and with famine and pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. A quarter of the earth. This is devastation. And then we see, and we're going to kind of connect this to the second part of this sermon, but this multitude, the fifth seal, what is the judgment? And uh, most people have come that I've read, they understand, the only way to understand any judgment in here, because it's not a judgment for the believer to be martyred, but the judgment is their prayers. Their judgment is that they are praying to the Lord to come and wipe away every tear by exacting Vengeance. Vengeance is not for us, but vengeance is the Lord's. And he will do that one day. He will come back and he's going to correct that. And he's going to begin and 
But yet he says during that fifth seal, during those prayers, I will answer those prayers. But he says, not yet. There are even more, verse 11, to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Which I think that verse 9 of our text this morning refers to those, that multitude there. And then the sixth seal, the one of the kind of cosmic events that start to begin. And if we try to look at timing, we're somewhere, we're not at the beginning at this point. I don't know if we're exactly at the middle of the tribulation. Um, And then as you look at this interlude, before we get to the seventh seal, some see it as chronological, that this happens after the sixth seal is cracked. Um, It could be that it's simply referring to an interlude where this chapter seven refers to this whole period. And so are these sealed at the beginning? Are they sealed at the middle? Yes. I don't know. We'll find out someday. But we're going to see that these seals are opened. We're going to be in the interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. And then we know the trumpets and the bowls are to come. But what I want to see this morning, I think what, if you read your Bible, not just in the context of Revelation, but in the context of all of Scripture, what you're going to see here is a very simple truth, but powerful, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Because as I said, you're going to read, and you're going to go, Israel, 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 Israel. What happened? This is the beginning of, we understand what is going to happen, and then in which way do we understand Romans chapter 11, that all of Israel will be saved. So I think there's two key biblical story questions that are answered here. Number one, what about Israel? And number two, what about the redeemed Gentiles or the redeemed nations in the tribulation? And so we're going to answer those two questions, and we're going to do a little Bible training so you can warm up your fingers. Because really it is Genesis all the way through now that informs this conversation of why do you think this is that? And why don't you think the 144,000, as some do, why do you think it's not the church, but it is to be associated with the nation of Israel? So we're going to see all those things. And so we're going to look first here to the first question. What about Israel? Two-thirds of your Bible addresses this nation. And it's not because this nation is special. In fact, that's the opposite. If you're paying attention to that yearly Bible reading plan, they're not that special. In fact, they continually are disobedient over and over and over and over again. But what's special about Israel is that God has chosen them. So what's special about Israel is Yahweh, the God in whom that they serve. The importance of Israel, though, is really rooted in the fact that there's a promise that needs to be fulfilled from the fall to the salvation of God's people. And for that, turn with me. I don't have much on the slide this morning. I thought it'd be, we got enough to do and thought it'd be good for us if you had your Bibles. If you don't, you can always grab your phone. I won't judge you that harshly. But this is good. This is good to see with your own eyes and to see within the context. But looking at Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. I know this is a refresher review for some, but this is the storyline that begins at the very beginning in verse 14, that Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat 
all the days of your life. And so there's a curse for the serpent, which is Satan. And he says, of Satan, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, singular, and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We don't have time to do all of the work, but I'll just tell you, take that Hebrew word, zera, English seed, singular, and look for it. Look for it in Genesis. Look for it in Exodus. Look, at it, look for it all through the scriptures because it'll keep popping up over and over and over and over and over again. This is an important word. And it's important. Why? Because see, the promise is, God is saying, from Eve's seed, one will come that is actually going to bruise the head. That is, he's going to do the fatal blow. Yes, he shall bruise him on the heel. But the seed that comes from Eve, which understood as the messianic, beginning of the messianic promise, he will crush the serpent's head. And so you begin with that promise. And if you really were to look out, and even the name Seth, as you get to the, obviously, Cain and Abel. You don't know much. Cain and Abel, it didn't go so well. Two brothers that fought and Cain kills Abel. Well, guess what? It's not Cain that is going to save their people. But they named the third son Seth, which means seed. Maybe there's hope on Eve's part that maybe this will be the one. And as much as I love immediate gratification, I imagine that that's what they thought. Maybe this will be quick and maybe we'll return to paradise. Paradise lost, paradise gained in a few generations. But that's not God's intent. He has far more that he is going to do and far more that he is going to be magnified for throughout all of history because he is patient and allowing all of this and you and I to be here and gaining worshipers. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, and again, we're just answering the question before we get to Revelation 7, because if you don't have a context for Israel and 12 tribes, then you're going to get lost. So why is Israel important? Why is this even a thing? And I'll tell you this real quickly. Revelation 1 through 3 dealt with seven churches. John knows the word. And you get to Revelation chapter 7, and he doesn't use it. He doesn't even use it for the nations. He says they're the nations of every tribe and every tongue that are praising. He doesn't say the church. He, sep- he uses actually Old Testament language when he uses both of these descriptions. And I just submit that if he did want to talk about you and I, and he did want to talk about the church age, he would use the term because he knows the term. He just used it, chapter 3. And so that's why I best understand. I think the church is raptured or presented by the 24 elders. But it goes back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, where you see Abraham called by Yahweh. Genesis 12, 1. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land, from your kin, and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And you, so shall you be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curses you, I will curse. And all, and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If I did have it up on the screen, I'd underline that last part. So many times, I feel like when you have a futuristic view of Revelation— and you have a distinction. You see a future for Israel. It kind of becomes this. People go, oh, why are you so obsessed? I'm not obsessed with Israel. I'm not biased towards Israel. 
I'm just saying they're the vehicle by which all the nations will be blessed. They're unique in that role. Very beginning. And it's not just Messiah, because we're going to see that's part of the promise, but there's more to what they are promised as well that we still have not seen fulfilled. If you were to flip over Genesis 15, verse 18 through 21, specifically of the covenant, says, On that day Yahweh cut a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your, and there's your word, to your seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzites, the Kadamite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. He says, I've made a covenant with you. If we were to look at that covenant, it is Yahweh who walks and makes that covenant, and he puts Abram to sleep. It's what we call an unconditional covenant. Was was Israel faithful? No. But flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. So get your work out here. The first five books here of Moses. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30, Deuteronomy is recounting the law, instructing Israel. And if you look at, starting just verse 25, it says, When you become the father of children and children's children, and remain long in the land and act corruptly, and make a graven image in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, as, so as to revoke him to anger. That hasn't happened yet. This is Moses. Moses saying, okay, when, the inevit- when, when human nature inevitably does what human nature does. When you become father of children's children's children, you remain long in the land, you will ultimately rebel. You're going to act evil in the sight of Yahweh. You're going to provoke him to anger. You're going to break the covenant that you made at Sinai. So that's just assumed. It's not like that's a shock at this point, which is fascinating. It's, it's predicted. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, and you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over to the Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days on it, but will utterly destroyed. And what happens? Verse 27, Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will remain a few in number among the nations where Yahweh drives you. And there you will serve gods. The work of man's hand, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek Yahweh your God, and you will find him, for you will search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Verse 30, and when you are in distress, and all these things have come upon you, this is how it relates to Revelation. In the last days, you will return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice. For Yahweh your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. We look at that phrase, last days. In the Old and the New Testament, we are in the last days. And this is God saying, I'm not going to forget you in the last days. That is to say, this can't simply mean when they go back and build the temple, the second temple in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. No, this is about the last days they will return to the Lord. So then you're reading your Bible and you're flipping through and you're going, well, 
when is that going to happen? And I have a dozen more verses here, which I don't think we have time for. Think of the minor prophets. That's their main subject. Israel is going to be judged, but Yahweh will ultimately restore Israel. There will be a remnant. What I find so interesting is those promises made to Israel were not made to a faithful Israel. The promises made to Israel in those minor and major prophets is to a rebellious Israel. That's who's promised. I will not forget you. The promises are to the unfaithful, to, to pagan Israel. And you might ask, well, why? Why? I say because, in part, I don't know all the reasons why, but I guarantee you at least one reason why. Because this way, God receives the glory, not man. God gets more glory because you're not going to be able to say it was Israel. You're not going to say it because they were special. There's nothing special about them outside of they are God's people, which makes them very special. Full forward to Isaiah 48, verse 11. Building on that idea, Isaiah 48, verse 9. It says, For the sake of my name, I delay my anger, and for my praise, I restrain it for you. In order not to cut you off, behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Why? He says, for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? Now go to Romans chapter 11. Before then, we will find ourselves in Revelation Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25. Paul is writing here that after reading about the Gentiles being grafted in, there's a question of well, what does this relationship look like? And one thing he doesn't do is he doesn't blend them. Actually, he keeps it distinct. And I think he does so throughout the whole New Testament, which is one of the arguments for why then we get to chapter 7 to understand this as Israel as a nation. It says verse 25 of Romans 11, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Which is interesting. Paul is basically assuming you're going to get it wrong. You're going to think you're right, but you're probably going to get it wrong. So let me help you here. The Spirit's saying, you're going to get Israel wrong, so let me make sure you get it right. And so the Spirit's going to tell Paul, this is what you need to know. What you need to know is, verse 25, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's going to go and talk about his people. But it is to say, we understand that there is a partial hardening until the, foot, the fullness of the Gentiles come in, until the last days. And then the promise is, in the last days, they will return. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Well, how does that begin? Flip back to Revelation chapter 7. It begins here. 
with these sealed for a particular purpose, the 144,000. Say, why does it matter? Why the interlude? Let's just get to the end. Because we need to know where and when is God going to fulfill his promises? When is he going to finish the story? The world is about to end. I need to know. And so that's where I think this interlude, why is it here? It's to let us know and tie up the story. To begin to say, oh, there is a future here and a beginning. And it begins with them being sealed. And so, verse 1, he says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of God on their foreheads. At this point in Revelation, angels are no surprise. The the picture is here of them sealing up the wind. Where does wind come from? Think of a, a compass. North, east, south, west. And there's four angels holding the wind back from every direction is the picture. And it is not able to then begin the destructive elements. And from there, another angel appears. And that angel comes with the seal of the living God. And he cries out and says, Stop. Wait. Right? To the four angels to whom it is granted to harm the earth and the sea. says, do not do it yet. Do not harm the earth or the sea until we have sealed the slaves of God on their forehead. It's the idea of the seals. We've already seen that they stamped closed the scroll. It's the same idea here. A stamp of this is mine. You have library, books, right? They're stamped. This, whose book is this? This is Josh's book. We have a little stamp that you, know, you put on a letter for a return address. So if you got our Christmas card, it was probably stamped Teeson Family. Boys have gotten hold of that multiple times. You know, they've stamped every inch of the house in Teeson Family. Just so. But it's that idea, right? Whose is this? Boom, impressed upon. This is his. They are sealed. And it's in contrast to the ones who will be sealed. The, the, Satan, the beast, will seal his, the mark of the beast. And God is going to seal his. And he's going to seal them for a particular purpose. They're going to be marked out. We don't really see it here. But if you want to quickly flip to Revelation 14, you have a little bit of more information about the character of who these are. It's another reason I don't think this is a symbolic number. It's mentioned again and again. It's a particular group that's set apart from the church in chapters 1 through 3, and it's set apart from the martyrs. And when it's set apart, just like Israel set apart, it is for a distinct purpose. And then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, chapter 14, verse 1, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Why? Because they were sealed, chapter 7. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice with which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one, he says, could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. 
another definition of uniqueness. He says, they, interestingly enough, are ones who are not defiled with women. They're men, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And they have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And more than that, verse 5, it says, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So they are blameless and holy and set apart for a distinct purpose. So are they walking the earth now? No. Are you one of them? No. I know everyone too well. I don't think you're blameless. I definitely know I'm not. You see their character of who they are. Well, what are they going to do? It would seem to be this is the beginning of the salvation that is coming, that is promised in Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 11, for the salvation of Israel. They're going to be the most powerful evangelistic force that the earth has ever seen. So much so that this seal is one of protection from what? From the judgments. And then they show up in chapter 14, which means they did what no one else did. They did what the other believers didn't do. They're going to escape the tribulation, but they're not going to escape it through being protected. They're going to escape it through being killed in verses 9 through 17. So I think that's their role. And the question is, well, how is this going to begin? What is, what is going to happen? What about Israel? This is it. And furthermore, if you want to see why do you think that of the 144,000, because verse 4 through verse 8 gives a very particular answer to the tribes. It says, I heard the number of those having been sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 having been sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Natalia, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Iskar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Having been sealed. It's least interesting of note that if you look and you compare that there are multiple different lists of the tribes of Israel throughout the Old Testament for various reasons. You can list them based on who is the oldest, which by the way, it's not Judah. It's Reuben is the oldest. So at least one question, why is Judah labeled first? This list is unlike any of the other lists. We're missing one. Dan, the northern tribe, is missing. You have Manasseh, but his brother Ephraim has been replaced by the father, Joseph, in verse 8. And you're left with these questions, why now? Well, it seems to be there is a recount. That is, if you looked at a map of the United States and you said, 1850, Nebraska is not a state. There aren't 50 states. And it would look different than when you count in 2023. 400 years have gone by with Israel, and this looks differently. Judah, I think, is probably the most confident one I have. Why is he number one? Well, because the lamb is the lion of Judah. Jesus comes from Judah, who isn't the firstborn son. But Jacob said he's the one who will have the scepter, because Reuben was sinful and it was taken. He forfeited his birthright. So Judah is named as Number one. You go, why is Dan missing? Throughout the Old Testament, Dan is in the north. They border the Gentiles and for the most part are the wicked, rebellious, most wicked and rebellious tribe in the north, always dealing with idolatry. So they don't seem to be here. Levi shows up. Levi doesn't get land. He's not usually in the list, but he's here. 
Seemingly, he replaced Dan. The faithful Levites are included in this list. And then Ephraim is missing, Joseph's other son, perhaps because he also, throughout the Old Testament, is unfaithful. Again, we don't quite know 100% why some are admitted and others are included, except for I do feel pretty confident about Judah. But it is to say, this is the number. This is what it looks like. These are the ones that he will seal, and these are the ones he will use throughout the world to evangelize. Where are the martyrs going to come from? Where are the believers going to come from? They may come from people who sat in church, who weren't believers, who are not raptured. That's true. But these 144,000 are going to go out and evangelize the world. And it's going to be a testimony that God is faithful. That he did not forget Israel. That you go and say, well, how? The genealogical records in 8070 were destroyed. No one knows what tribe they're in, even if they do have a Jewish background. God knows. And it's going to be done in such a way that you will praise him and go, no one could have done that but God. When you read and you go, why? Why Israel? Why would God use them in this way? Why even specially seal them out? It's nothing that they are, but it is simply God's grace, God's mercy. And no one will be able to say, Romans chapter 11, that they were saved because of their heritage, because of who their parents were, because of somebody in the past. No, God saves by his mercy, his mercy alone, his grace. It's a gift at the end of the day. And Israel is going to fully realize that and God is going to receive more glory and he's going to redeem them for his name's sake. We don't have time to get into part two. So I guess I really didn't lie about my sermon. Um, I only did one through seven. So we're, we're one through eight. We're, we're good there. But as you look at this, and just that first question, as we look forward to next week and look at the redeemed Gentiles in the tribulation, you can't help but be reminded that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Why is this here? Why does he address Israel? Because you are left wondering, is he going to fulfill these promises? And the answer is yes. How? It seems unlikely. Yet, he's going to do this very thing in a miraculous way. In an age where Christianity very much feels under attack from all sides. It's a comfort here to know God steps in, God cares for his people in different ways. For these, they're sealed. They're protected to do ministry. Others are going to suffer and be martyred in the tribulation. But either way, the Lord will care for them, and it'll be true. Verse 16, and we'll look at Isaiah next week, because all this comes from Isaiah. They will no hunger, no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat but God will wipe every tear from their eyes. He cares for his people. He fulfills his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can see and be encouraged by the truth that you will restore a people that is unworthy. And yet we know that is because there are none worthy but the Lamb, none worthy but Christ. And so encourage us with that truth of who you are and your character and that there is not one detail that will be missed.
but you will fulfill all. You will answer every question and you will fulfill every promise. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.